Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Target Brands Incorporated, which operates stores all over the country, plays an extensive role in funding police violence and surveillance of black and brown communities, according to a recent expose that Bloomberg Businessweek published entitled, How Target Got Cozy with the Cops, Turning Black Neighbors into Suspects. Target's police activity spans decades. Since the early 2000s, Target has given $300,000 to the Baltimore Police Department for purchasing an enhanced cell phone tracking system. The corporation has given $200,000 to the Los Angeles Police Foundation to purchase a high-tech surveillance system to track Los Angeles residents. The system is from Palantir Technologies Incorporated, a surveillance and intelligence company. Target has also given $100,000 to the Albuquerque Police Department to develop a surveillance network that features images of and reports on supposedly suspicious individuals, often with suspects' names and license plate numbers attached. However, times are changing. Target is under increasing scrutiny and Target executives are feeling public pressure, which is the way to force the corporation to stop funding police violence and mass surveillance. In 2008, Monroe County moved to build a new expanded jail framed as a justice campus using humanitarian rhetoric. In response, a diverse group of local residents founded an organization called Decarcerate Monroe County. Here's how they later summarized their activities. Quote, DMC's framework included embracing alternatives to punitive justice, promoting ways to decarcerate, and building a safer community. The Justice Campus proposal was defeated, and the organization went on to fight campaigns against gentrification and discrimination, to ban the box, which is disclosing a felony conviction on job applications, to keeping police out of the Youth Services Bureau." Judah Schept, our guest today, was an organizer with the successful DMC effort to block jail expansion here, as well as a profound critic of what his book terms progressive punishment, in which humanist rationales are used to justify state violence in the expansion of caging. This discourse has reappeared locally with Monroe County's renewed drive to build new jail facilities on alleged human rights grounds, but is also a strategic feature of many prison and policing projects across the country right now. In the wake of the George Floyd uprising, institutions, which are founded on anti-Black violence and incarceration, are forced to use reformist language to justify the continuation and growth of that violence. Another example is the Cop Academy, proposed to be built on top of a treasured urban forest in Atlanta whose boosters mobilize social justice rhetoric to justify spending tens of millions of dollars on a new police training facility. Nicole Siegel conducted this interview with Judah and was also a contributor to Decarcerate Monroe County's successful campaign against the last round of jail expansion here in Bloomington. This is Nicole Siegel for KiteLine. I'm interviewing Professor Judah Schept of Eastern Kentucky University Justice Studies. He is the author Uh, most recently of Coal Cages Crisis, the rise of the prison economy in central Appalachia, coming out from NYU in March of 2022. 
And before that, the author of Progressive Punishment, Job Loss, Jail Growth, and the Neoliberal Logic of Carceral Expansion, his first book also from NYU, which was an ethnography of the controversy around jails and new jail construction in Monroe County, Indiana, here at home in Bloomington. I'm interviewing Professor Shep today because uh, we have another proposal on the table for something that is eerily familiar to um, what Judah wrote about, oh, these 10, 15 years ago. So Judah, welcome to KiteLine. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, I wanna start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about progressive punishment the book that you wrote about Monroe County, the process of writing that book, and what you came to argue, what you came to conclude and argue in that wonderful book. Thanks so much for that, Nicole. It's really amazing to be in conversation with you. It's a pleasure to be on KiteLine and to be speaking with my old and beloved community in Bloomington. So yeah, thanks for that introduction. Progressive punishment, as I think you said, emerged out of several years of organizing and dissertation research while I was a graduate student at Indiana University. I was already pursuing a PhD in criminal justice when this proposal was circulated to dramatically and in fact exponentially expand the existing carceral system in Bloomington by way of building something that officials were calling a justice campus, which would have sat on 85 acres on the south side of Bloomington and would have included a brand new jail with double the capacity of the current one and actually room to expand by double the capacity again, a new juvenile detention facility and a new work release center taken together that would have, like I said, exponentially expanded the existing you know, capacity of the community to arrest and detain and incarcerate uh, its residents. So this proposal began sort of circulating, I think, in about 2007. And a number of us began just sort of talking about it. And I'd say pretty quickly within the span of a month or two, this was in the late winter, early spring of 2008, pretty quickly we began holding community meetings and sort of more formally organizing as a group that came to be called Decarcerate Monroe County. That group of people included really amazing local residents, including Nicole Siegel, and we began holding popular education sort of meetings in town and hosting our own meetings and attending county meetings. I just, I remember that moment with, with so much enthusiasm because when we began organizing, there was just a, you know, a rush of public support for our organizing. And the, the little group that we formed became just, you know, solid and vibrant. And it was so clearly an issue that spoke to people there was so much opposition to the jail and there was the activism was just you know intense and what uh, was this fervent of intentionality uh, in opposition to this jail and it was so deeply nourishing to be a part of that movement in that moment i, I remember it very fondly i think it's important to, to recognize that there was something about that moment that made it possible for that to happen i do too i think that's a really important point i think you know it started with four of us talking and very, very rapidly became something much larger, more dynamic. It didn't mean that there was one sort of central 
political tendency of the group. I think we had some really important strategic and analytical differences even within the group. And I think that was really valuable. And I think just to build on on what you said, I think there was enough opposition and enough openness to opposition that we wound up, in fact, sort of shifting the common sense of at least enough people who were in positions of political and civic leadership that the prospect of building the Justice Campus lost a lot of political capital. There were a number of people who would say to me during the course of my research that it was, in fact, our work as a group, the questions that we asked, the exercises that we facilitated, the analysis that we offered, that made them really stop and and rethink what had been their support for expansion. So would you talk a little bit about some of the research you did outside of Decarcerate Monroe County or DMC? your conversations with officials and politicians in the city, the county, and the justice system. Yeah, absolutely. So during that summer of 2008 is when, um, or maybe a little bit later, is when I began sort of formally doing dissertation research as I was also active with Decarcerate Monroe County. And that dissertation research involved attending a lot of community meetings, some of which we hosted, many of which the county hosted, including four Uh, of sort of official hearings about the Justice Campus that featured local officials as well as the county's consultant for, for the Justice Campus. And it involved, to your question more specifically, interviewing a lot of different, I don't know, quote unquote, stakeholders, people who had expressed a lot of support for the Justice Campus. So I sat down with a number of different judges and interviewed them, county commissioners and county council members, as well as other county residents who showed up to meetings and who clearly had sort of uh, strong opinions about the Justice Campus. And many of these people, in fact, I would say just about all of them, what was so striking to me at the time, and this is again about 2008, 2009, is that many of them had pretty informed and acute understandings and analysis of mass incarceration or the carceral state and the drug war and things like that. They would speak out against those things publicly and certainly in interviews with me. And then almost literally in the next sentence, turn around and say, we can do incarceration differently in Monroe County. And they would endorse the Justice Campus and a particular sort of vision of the Justice Campus. And that to me was at least the initial and certainly ongoing kind of central seeming contradiction that I wanted to examine. That is a striking paradox. You know, how could they articulate opposition to mass incarceration and then support for a new jail within the same paragraph. How how did you come to understand that? What allowed them to hold what would seem to be a position of pretty intense cognitive dissidence? I mean, that to me is the central question. I'm not like certain that I have the answer. I think there's a few things I would say. I think a lot of what you would hear at those meetings, and I'm guessing people listening 12 years later, still here in Bloomington, is the invocation of Bloomington as a kind of exceptional place, maybe nationally, certainly within the context of Indiana. And I think people's sense of Bloomington's exceptionality led to this belief that somehow the politics of the carceral state could stop at this sort of imagined border, geographic and 
ideological and political border around Monroe County such that we could somehow expand. And in, in the case of the Justice Campus, I got to say it again, like dramatically, exponentially expand the county's ability to incarcerate its residents. And yet at the same time, do so in such a way that it would be almost like a form of opposition or resistance to mass incarceration. It does seem like a complete contradiction, but I came to understand it as almost like a filtration system, like people were sort of able to filter out the analysis that they would otherwise hold with respect to increased jail infrastructure or prisons or whatever, and endorse something very different. I think the other thing going on there that's really important to name is I think we have this, and by we, I mean, not just Bloomington. I think this is a much larger sort of concept that we tend to invoke the concept of community in ways that are very sort of generalized and that ignore the state or to be more specific that ignore that in at least some contexts community probably should be understood as a scale of the state and so bloomington officials and others who who would sort of offer this seeming contradiction i think were imagining that the carceral state was something outside of bloomington and that the municipality's ability to expand jail and juvenile detention and whatnot was somehow not an expression of the carceral state at the county level, which of course it exactly was. Wow, I just, I wanna just sit with that for a minute that the concept of community is used in a way that ignores the state. And rather than thinking of it as something outside the state, as people tend to do, as people are really attracted to doing, we should understand it as a scale of the state, as an object that has a scalar relationship to the state. That is, it is some small scale version of the state. That is, is that what you mean, Judah? I, yeah, I, I don't want to, I want to be clear, I don't want to abandon the notion of community. I think it can be invoked in really important revolutionary ways. I just think that at times, maybe most of the time, the way that it functions is to sort of mystify the fact that the city or the county or whatever that we might be invoking as a geographic representation of a community is in fact just the state at a particular scale of its expression. That to me, I've come, I'm not even sure if I say that in that way in the book, but that is how I've come to understand it some years later. I suspect that's what's happening in, in a place like Bloomington where, or to me, that's maybe the best explanation for the cognitive dissonance that you named. I think that's undeniable when you look at the proposal that's on the table right now in Monroe County for the exploration of the possibility of a new jail. The concept of community is all over this proposal. And in fact, there are a couple other keywords that I think are also going through this kind of meaning creep. You know, their meaning is creeping away from what it originally or what, you know, what it previously meant when it had something to do with protest and social justice and now is coming around to the side of containment. There are two consultants right now that the county is hiring to explore the possibility of a new jail. And one of them is called Inclusivity Strategic Consulting, Inclusivity. And the other is called RJS Justice Services. 
Um, there we see, of course, the word justice, which is at the center of the issue we're discussing, the criminal justice system. Community is also all throughout this report, especially in the proposals offered by inclusivity strategic consulting for community services, community-based treatment, community-based, community after jail, community corrections, community-based criminal justice supervision. This community is in fact used five times in a single paragraph when inclusivity strategic consulting offers up its proposals. It's, it's undeniable that we, we need to be skeptical of some of these terms that have been so profoundly perverted in their usage and their meaning. I think that's exactly right. I think there's a few things I would add. One is what I, one thing that I had actually forgotten for a little while until you were just talking about that is during the era of the Justice Campus proposal, the county's corrections consultant multiple times would use the word green in their discussion of the Justice Campus and certainly in the actual formal proposal and not expand I mean, literally not expand at all beyond just saying the Justice Campus will will be green. Of course, trying to assuage and satisfy people in the community who wanted, you know, to build sustainably and, you know, have lead design jails and things like that. To your point, it's, it's removed from any kind of actual political valence or consequence. It's just a way to sort of satisfy, I guess, people's need to feel like this is something distinct. And in the case of green sustainable, and in the case of inclusivity and justice and community, to feel like it is something more humane and, of course, just and maybe therapeutic. I think all of those examples point to a somewhat new, somewhat very old tendency that we're seeing in the last, I don't know, maybe 13 years or so, I think the Justice Campus in Bloomington was on the front end of this new tendency that our friend and comrade James Kilgore named as carceral humanism, which is now, years later, like I was saying, a sort of central logic or tendency of expansion, which is somewhat distinct in its language from the sort of traditional politics of law and order that served to expand prisons and jails for the last you know, three or four decades of the 20th century in that it argues for expanding jails or cops or prisons by speaking to their ability to extend benevolence as treatment or rehabilitation or education or welfare or other kinds of services to the people that are incarcerated within those spaces. But it has, of course, the same result as that law and order logic, which is, of course, to expand jails and prisons or police. Carceral humanism. Yeah, it's such a useful concept. It brings us to the kind of skepticism that we need of these gestures towards humanism that are ultimately carceral. I want to pull your attention then to the proposal on the table right now in Monroe County. And little shout out here, we're getting our information from the B-Square Bulletin, this wonderful local news source choreographed by Dave Askins journalist in town. And we're looking at an article that Askins wrote uh, about the consultation process the county is going through right now to explore the possibility and the need for a new jail. So would, would you look at this proposal, Judah, and just reflect back what is familiar to you? What is, what is coming full circle and what in this proposal do you see that is new? Yeah, really important questions. I would say a few things. One, 
bit of sort of archival piece that I did in the lead up to writing the book, Progressive Punishment, was to look at the history of studies of the jail in Bloomington, in Monroe County. I found studies you know, as, as early as the mid seventies and the, the very first one, which was completed in 77 or 78, looked at the sort of decrepit jail that was in existence at that time and said a new jail was needed, but said that, and I should say that the jail at that time, this is the late 1970s. And this is really germane to, to the study today. The jail in operation in the late seventies had a capacity of 44 people. The consultant hired in the late 70s to evaluate the jail said, we need a new jail, but the high-end capacity that Bloomington will need or that Monroe County will need into the year 2000 is 65 people. In other words, they came back saying the county needed a new jail, but with about the same capacity as the old one. And the county ignored that study. And then in the early 1980s began this uh, in the early 1980s, contracted with a different agency who proposed what is now the current jail. And since that time, and of course, they built the current jail in 86. Since that time, the county has engaged in probably over a dozen studies at this point, all of which say some semblance of the same thing that the RJS study and the other one that you named report, which is that the jail is inadequate it needs to be renovated or ideally needs to be abandoned for a new and more sort of state-of-the-art facility. So I'm not the least bit surprised to, to see um, both the price tag, which is reminiscent of what we saw 12 years ago, nor am I surprised to see that they talk about finding systemic structural problems. And I'm certainly not surprised to see that they conclude by saying that there needs to be a new jail. What I would say is that even as I would really caution or recommend serious skepticism when evaluating and reading studies from corrections consultants, that doesn't mean that there aren't important insights offered in the report that people who are opposed to jail expansion could actually learn from and mobilize to strengthen their case. Now, I've only looked at these sort of briefly ahead of our interview, but there's a couple of things I would, I would point to. One of the studies reported, I think it was the ISC report. I'm not sure if I'm getting that acronym right. One of the reports said that with some 250 to 320 inmates on any given day, 75 to 80% of those have some form of mental illness and or substance abuse disorder. 75 to 80% of the jails super overcrowded population. I highly doubt there is anyone in Bloomington, in Monroe County, who would argue that for someone for whom substance abuse or mental health is their sort of primary issue, that a cage, even a slightly bigger one, is the best solution for the problems that they're experiencing. And if 75 to 80% of the people who are in jail, if the consultant identifies that 75 to 80% of the people in jail have substance abuse or mental health as their sort of primary problem or issue. To me, the response to that is to say, okay, we need different kinds of services than a jail. And I suspect that a lot of people would agree with that. The other thing from the reports that I think is really important to name, or there's a couple of other things, but I'll, I'll say one for now, is that the jail population has actually changed. The RJS report did an evaluation from 2003 to 2018, and the jail population, the composition of the jail population has changed, which I think is really important to name. There's fewer men being incarcerated and many more women 
the population has aged a lot. And I'm talking about the number of the age of a, of a given person in a given year being locked up. But on the whole, the population has declined by, I think, 2.3 or 2.4%. The population is trending down over the last 17, 18 years, which to me is kind of contradicts the argument for building a new and larger jail. Does the fact that there are more women in the jail point to anything else about the composition of the folks who are behind bars there? I think that women tend to be incarcerated for different kinds of crimes. So do you see the arrest records, the charge records changing as well? I can't speak to that with any degree of specificity. I haven't, I haven't looked. I think that's probably accurate. And I think, I you know, I'm speculating, but I just, and it's probably not responsible to, you know, say this in, in the, the public venue of radio, but it seems like women are more likely to be incarcerated for crimes of poverty. Is this because of greater desperation? Is there, uh, you know, does this have to do with the 2008 financial downturn? Does it have to do with the predations of COVID, you know, on the one end of that 2008 to 2018 period and then on the other? I completely agree. And I, I think you're right. Like I'm hesitant to speculate, but I would wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. I think the other point I would just want to make on the subject of the reports, RJS, there's this moment in the report that says Monroe County will need 450 jail beds by the year 2049. And I think it's important to just sit with that, both that figure and that degree of speculation, I guess, and prediction, and really evaluate what's happening there. The notion of like predictive carceral capacity to me is just kind of wild. Like a jail population 28 years from now is entirely, you know, will entirely be the result of choices over the next 28 years, some of which could of course lead to a higher jail population. But this is not the least bit inevitable and is actually entirely dependent on choices that people in Monroe County, many people in Monroe County, but of course, judges and the prosecutor and the public defenders and the county commissioners and the county council, it's entirely dependent on choices they make between now and then. As you were just saying with respect to the changing jail composition of the jail population, people who go to jail, it's not reflective of like so-called crime. It's reflective of all kinds of changes in the United States, in the state of Indiana, and in the county related to the political economy, related to all kinds of things, many of which people at the scale of the county have control over. So by the year 2049, there really is no reason whatsoever that Monroe County couldn't decide to have a jail capacity of 150 people instead of 450 people or zero people. That is 28 years from now. And Bloomington, Monroe County could decide to be a leader in a movement to move beyond police and cages as putative solutions to the social problems that these reports actually name. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765 343 6236. 
You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.